when Ken and I went to Israel, <clears throat> one of the places we saw was a fortress called Masada. I mean, it was, it was a really impressive site. No, Ken really, really was looking forward to that. And it's, it's located at this perfect place. It's located where the, the desert mountains kind of rush down into this valley right along the edge of the Dead Sea. And so right along there, there's this ridge and there's these mountains. And, and one of, there's kind of a small mount with a flat top. And it's perfect for a fortress. And it, it's, it's about 1,400 feet above the Dead Sea. Uh, but around it, uh, there's these cliffs that shoot up, and, and they're everywhere from 250 to 400 feet higher than the, the rocky terrain below it. So it's this perfect spot. And the only way up originally into this fortress was a path that kind of meanders up the side of this cliff. And uh, it takes modern tourists, you can take that route, it takes modern tourists about 45 minutes, I guess, to take it. We didn't do that. Uh, we, we took the tram that went up the top, so, uh, or the little, little winding or the uh, little elevator thing that takes you up. You, walk, you walked it. Man, yeah, I, I give you all the credit in the world. That was, <laughs> looked down at it when we, we saw people walking up and just thought, woo, glad I'm in this. So, <laughs> uh, Herod the Great, he was the one, the Herod from our Christmas story, he was the one who built it, and uh, he included with it these cisterns, and he also cut into the side of the, the rock there, the cliffs there. He cut these channels and these aqueducts that would all make it so that when it rained, it naturally filled these cisterns. And so even though rain's sparse, that as the rain comes, it's, it's able to fill these cisterns. And these cisterns hold up to 200,000 gallons of water over time. So there was plenty of room there for this, this water. There was also plenty of room on top for other provisions as well. So Herod himself didn't actually spend much time there. But many years later, during the first century Jewish revolt uh, against the Romans, these Jewish zealots, they took over that fortress. And it was also where they fled when Jerusalem fell to the Romans. And so when the, the Romans caught up with them, they started their typical... Their typical strategy for taking a fortress, they built a, a, big, a big wall around the fortress so no one could get in and out of it. They were going to starve them out. At least that's what they thought they were going to do. They, they had no idea how much provisions they had. They had no idea about these cisterns and how well prepared they were for it. But, but what else are they going to do? I mean, this, this fortress is on the top of a, of a small mountain. I mean, they, they don't have anything in their warfare to really handle it. If they took that path... They would have to walk one soldier at a time, and as they got to the, the top, those Jewish soldiers could just heave these heavy stones down on them and knock them off one by one. So they couldn't do it. I mean, their siege towers couldn't reach 250 feet up in the air. They, their battering rams weren't going to do anything against the base of that mountain. So you could imagine the Jewish army. I mean, they were, I'm sure they, they thought they could wait the Romans out. I mean, there's things happening all over the Roman Empire surely something else was going to pop up that they would have to leave. They'd get bored, they'd get tired, and have to leave. Everything about warfare at the time said that that fortress was impregnable. There was no way that they could enter that. And so you can understand the confidence that people had, these Jewish soldiers had, but their confidence was misplaced. They didn't realize that the Romans were willing to stop at nothing to defeat them. And even willing to gather stones at the base of this mountain and, and build a massive siege ramp. Even 
build a siege tower that they were willing to heave up that ramp. So I, I think those Jewish soldiers likely felt invincible at first. They're on this mount, this Masada, this fortress, probably laughed as they looked down at these tiny little Romans running around trying to figure out what to do. Maybe even laughed when they took the first pile of stones and put it at the base. <laughs> What's that going to do? So when was it that they first started to doubt their victory? When, when did they first begin to lose confidence in their fortress? Was it when they saw, saw how high that siege ramp was getting? Was it when they saw the soldiers pushing up that siege tower? When did they lose hope? We know they did lose hope. We don't know exactly when it was, but we know that they lost hope because they're outnumbered by the Romans and they see this happening and at some point they chose to take their own lives instead of surrender. So when these Romans actually got to the top and got over the the wall, there was an eerie silence. There's only a couple women and a few children that were still alive. So that army, they, they, they had been confident, but they gave up. They gave up the fight. They, they didn't endure. They put their confidence in something that even, no matter how, how impressive it was, it was not unconquerable. And it could not rescue them in the end. So with all the opposition that, that Christians face, there could be a point in time where Christians start to wonder, have I put my confidence in the wrong thing? There could be a point where Christians lose hope. So when is that? It's when we look around us and see how uncool or unpopular it is to actually hold firm on, on some various truths that we believe from the Bible. Do, do we lose our confidence in God when, when people mock us? When people make fun of the way that Christians or what Christians believe? Maybe it's when our lives don't look as satisfying or as fulfilling as the people around us, the people who aren't following Christ. Or maybe it's when you see another Christian fail. Maybe they fail you. Or maybe, maybe you lose confidence because of your own unfaithfulness. Is, is what God has done for us enough to give us confidence to keep going, to not lose heart, to not give up? How can we have an unconquerable, persevering confidence to keep following Christ? What gives us confidence that our future is certain, that we can keep going? That's what Paul's going to tell us about in this conclusion, really, to what he's been talking about up to this point. In Romans 8, verses 31 through 39, Paul's going to give us two reasons why we should have an unconquerable, persevering confidence to keep following Jesus. We can confidently keep following Jesus because God is for us in Christ and because God loves us in Christ. So you could turn to Romans 8. If you haven't already done so, it is on page 888 there in the Pew Bible. Romans 8. And we're going to start by looking at verses 31 through 34. And and that's where Paul gives us the first reason that we can have this unconquerable, persevering confidence to keep following Christ. We can have that confidence because God is for us 
in Christ. God is for us in Christ. And so Paul begins by asking this question, what then shall we say to these things? These things, the things he's talking about there, that refers to everything he's been saying starting really in chapter 5 up to now. You can compare the beginning of chapter 5 and this latter part of chapter 8, and there's a lot of similarities. And then on top of that, punctuated throughout this section are these key phrases. They're at key points. Paul says phrases, he talks about things happening through our Lord Jesus Christ, or through Christ Jesus our Lord, or in Christ Jesus our Lord. I found that these key points in chapters 5 through 8, and so as he comes to a conclusion, you find that in verse 39, he uses that same phrase to end this section. So he's looking at chapters 5 through 8, and he's saying, essentially saying, what should our response be? How should we respond to these things. And he summarizes that response with the rhetorical question. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And that Greek statement there, God is for us, is very similar in meaning to a phrase that we hear at Christmas time. Emmanuel, God with us. Both of those ideas mean that God is on our side. And so Paul's saying, if God is on our side, then who can be against us? Now, he's not saying, you, you could think that he's saying nobody can ever oppose us. He's not saying nobody can oppose us. What he's saying is, in light of the fact that God is on our side, then it doesn't really matter who might oppose us. You know, we're on the winning side. We're secure. I, I, you know, those Jewish rebels, I'm sure, felt that way about Masada. You know, if we're on Masada. Who can stand against us? Who can fight against us? It wasn't that they were saying the Romans couldn't come there and stand at the base, but they were confident they were secure. But we're not, we're not basing our confidence in a man-made fortress. Paul's saying that we're, we're resting all of our confidence in the creator of heaven and earth. The God who sustains and governs everything. The God who spoke everything that is into existence who stands behind every breath in our lungs, every heartbeat, who is holding every atom together. That's the God who's on our side. And if he's for us, well then, what possible opposition should scare us or bother us or make us think, oh, oh, we're in trouble? How do we know God is for us? That's what Paul goes on to explain in verses 32 through 34. He says, we we know, first of all, that God is for us because of what Paul says in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, what other place in the Bible can you think of where you hear of a father who did not spare his own son? Abraham. I think I heard somebody say it. Story of Abraham. Isaac on Mount Moriah. I, I... I really appreciate the way that that Andrew Peterson describes that story in his song, Holy is the Lord. I'll acknowledge, it's a little imaginative, it is. But I think it it helps us kind of remember that story. So here's what he says. He says, he has Abraham saying, I waited on the Lord, and in a waking dream he came. Riding on a wind across the sand, he spoke my name. Here I am, I whispered, and I waited in the dark. The answer was a sword that came down hard upon my heart. Holy is the Lord. Holy is the Lord. And the Lord I will obey. Lord, help me. I don't know the way. So take me to the mountain. I will follow where you lead. There I'll lay the body of the boy you gave to me. And even though you take him, 
Still, I ever will obey. But maker of this mountain, please make another way. I don't know what Abraham was thinking. Andrew Peterson doesn't either. But the writers of the New Testament, they talk about what God did here. That the Lord God, he used this event in Abraham and Isaac's life to to point to when God himself would fulfill this. When God himself would not spare his own son. So, the Lord said to Abraham in, in Genesis 22, in verse 16, he says, Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Now, Paul writes that the father did not spare his own son. Now, there's a difference, though, right, between what happened with Abraham and the fulfillment. Abraham didn't withhold a son, but Isaac was rescued. God did make another way. That other way, the ram that that took Isaac's place, that was pointing forward to when God would fulfill this, when God would not spare his own son, but instead would give him up for us all, not just for Abraham's Jewish family, but for Jewish people and Gentiles, for all, all who believe. And this language of giving up, that's the same thing you find in the New Testament stories about Jesus' crucifixion. It's the same verb used to describe Judas Iscariot and what he did to Jesus. He gave him up to the Jewish leaders. It describes what the Jewish leaders did. They gave Jesus up to Pilate. It describes what Pilate did when he gave Jesus up to crucifixion. But it, it ultimately describes what God the Father did in giving up his own son. And he did that for us, for all who believe in the son. So what Paul says is God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Then that means if God did that, then how will he not also give with him, graciously give us all things? So what does he mean by all things? That's the same word translated in verse 28, all things. Paul said all things, that God works all things for our good. There's only one difference. Between those two verses. Here in verse 32, there's this little word that comes with it. It's called an article. It's usually translated with a the in English. And it it seems to be pointing back to verse 28. So that's the last place that Paul used this word, all things. In this way, all things. So Paul seems to be saying, how will he not also give us the all things I mentioned in verse 28? It's pointing back to when God said he works everything to make us more and more like Christ. Really, he's doing everything that leads to our glory. So instead of suggesting, though, Paul's not saying someday, that's not why it's, it's in the future. He's not saying someday this will be true. This is really a logical future. He's saying if God has already done for us what he has done for us in giving his son, then he's, of course, now going to give us everything that relates to Jesus. It has to do with why he did that in the first place. Everything we experience for his purposes that have to do with Jesus. And he says, he describes it as graciously give. That word is the verb form of the noun that's translated grace. He's gracing us. Everything we experience in life is an undeserved gift of God that's tailor-made to make us into the best version of ourself. 
best version of us as a human that we could possibly be. And, and that may be a terribly difficult thing, painful. But what God is doing is truly for our good. And he's saying here that we can be confident of that. We can be confident that that process is happening. We can be confident of our path from suffering to glory. Because it's a path that's marked by glory along the way. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And we can be confident that we will one day be glorified. And we can be confident because God's done the harder thing already. He gave us his son. So he's going to do now what he planned because of giving us his son. But that's not all. We can also be confident that God is forced because of what he says in verse 33. He asks this other rhetorical question. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, word elect, you could translate it chosen ones. You could translate it chosen people. I've mentioned in previous weeks here, this is once again a word that's used for Israel in the, old, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So David says in 1 Chronicles 16, 13, O offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. You could translate it elect. Psalmist says in Psalm 105, 43, so he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. The Lord says in Isaiah 43, 20, I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. So Paul takes this designation for Israel, and now he applies it to Christians, to those he just said were foreknown, predestined, and called. And so what he's saying here is who can bring any charge against God's chosen people? If God is the one who justifies them. And that's, that's courtroom language. The language of legal proceedings where somebody is trying to prosecute somebody for some wrong that they did. Paul's asking, really, it's a rhetorical question that basically means no one can prosecute God's chosen people if he's the one, he, the judge, is the one who's already said that they're in the right. So we, we actually experience an end-time justification when we trust in Jesus. When we place our trust in Jesus, that he, he provided for our forgiveness, that he provided for our righteous status with God, then we're declared righteous. And it's an end-time declaration that he does, that God makes in time, in now, right now. So what Paul's saying is that there is no wrong that we could commit that can stick. Because, not because we can't sin, but because Jesus has lived and died and been raised, our justification is permanently established. And then he reiterates this in verse 34. He asks this question, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? We know from what Paul says and, and others say in other places that the Messiah is the one who judges. The Messiah is the one who condemns people in the end. So if the judge came already and took the punishment that we deserve, if he paid our penalty, and if he was raised from the dead, that shows that God the Father accepted him as righteous and then accepted that payment, then who can condemn us? So you can understand the security we have. Now, there, we have an illustration of this assurance with the Fifth Amendment of our Constitution. And it says, No person shall be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. It's referred to as double jeopardy. 
means that you cannot be tried for the same offense more than once. Whether or, God, whether or not you're acquitted or you're condemned, you're convicted. doesn't matter. You can't be tried again for it. Once you've been tried, the verdict stands. And, and that especially, would, you could logically think in the case that if you've been convicted and then you, you paid the punishment for it, you cannot pay that again. Nobody can continue to seek additional justice. Now, we know that our justice system isn't perfect, but God's justice is perfect. Christ came, he lived in our place, he died in our place, he rose again in our place. So Jesus is our representative for everyone who believes in him. And everyone who believes now experiences the benefits of his life, death, and resurrection. So what Paul is really saying is that God has already ruled our case, our end time case. Our trial has already been done. Jesus took our conviction. Jesus paid our punishment. And then he gave us his righteous status. So God ruled that Christ was guilty because of our sin. And he ruled that we are righteous because of what Christ did. So justice has been served. That's what Paul's saying. It's justice has been taken care of. We cannot be tried again. No one else can prosecute us. No one else can condemn us for our sin. Nothing. For those who are trusting in Christ, nothing can disqualify you from this salvation. There's no sin that you could commit that could negate this justification of yours by faith. There's no text in Scripture that ever even hints that you can lose your justification. It's permanent. In fact, again, what Paul said here is, those who are foreknown were also predestined, also called, also justified, and also glorified. There's no break in the chain. So if you have saving faith, you cannot lose your justification ever. That doesn't mean that there can't be somebody who has a kind of faith that does not flow out of the Spirit's work. It's a kind of faith, a version of faith. But it's really just a human product. A person, I would say, truly believes the truth about Jesus. But it isn't because their, their hearts are transformed. They believe that now. They may not always believe it. But their belief isn't transformative. It's really just a human act. And so I say that because there are people that you could hook them up to a polygraph and they would say, I believe in Jesus. They would pass that test. But either they walk away at some point, we wonder, how can that be? Or they make it to the end and Jesus tells them as they say, Lord, Lord, he says, I never knew you. We wonder, how can that be? They look like they, they believe. It is not saving faith. So Paul's not talking about that version of faith. He's talking about saving faith. He's saying anybody who has genuine saving faith that results from the work of the Spirit, that flows out of the effectual call. If you've been born again and you're trusting in Jesus, then your sin cannot derail you from sharing in Christ's glory. Now, understand that if you are going to share in Christ's glory then what's happening to you now is that you're beginning to share in that. As Paul says elsewhere, you're, you're being conformed to Christ from one degree of glory to the next. So there will be evidence of that along the way. 
But that doesn't mean that you can't sin anymore. Paul's saying your sin cannot steal away God's work that he's doing in you. That leads to your, your glorification. And then Paul adds one last piece of evidence that God is for us. Not only did Jesus die for us and it was raised, but Paul adds that Jesus is now at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. God promised that the Messiah, he was going to seat the Messiah at his right hand. He promised that in the first verse of, of Psalm 110. He was going to do that until he subdued all his enemies. No one understood how that was going to work until the Messiah came and surprisingly died and rose again. When he rose again, he ascended to heaven and he was seated at the right hand of the Father just as this, this psalm told us would happen. And then Paul, along with John and the writer of the Hebrews, they all tell us about how the Son is right now interceding for us. So John says in 1 John 2, 1, that Jesus is our advocate. He, he represents us before God. Hebrews describes Jesus as our high priest who represents us before the Father in heaven. We don't want to get the wrong idea, though. It's not, he's not saying, none of them are saying that, that the Father is still against us. Remember, it's the Father's initiative to send the Son to rescue us from our sin. And the Father has fully accepted what Jesus did, raising him as he did from the dead. So why then does Jesus still intercede for us if the Father's for us? What Paul's doing here is he's showing how the triune God is at work to make sure that we endure to the end. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they're all making sure that we make it to the end. The Father, we've already seen, is working with the Spirit so that everything we face perfectly works toward the good that he has for us of being more like Christ. And then what he's saying here is the, the Son's a part of that work too. He's working for us too. The Spirit intercedes for us, he says in verse 27, using the same word here, the Son is interceding for us. Spirit is asking the Father for what specifically will lead to our becoming like Christ. That's exactly what Jesus is doing right now, up in heaven. The pioneer of our path is asking the Father for exactly what we need to make it all the way to glory. And that's what Jesus did on earth. He did the same thing on earth. You remember when he was talking to Peter, he was telling him, he was just about going to tell him that he, he was going to deny him. Just before that, in Luke 22, he tells Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. He might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then in John 17, Jesus prayed for his disciples, and not only the ones that were there right then, he prayed for his future disciples, and he prayed for everything we would need to persevere. That's what he's doing now. So you can see the complete union of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as they, they're bringing about what the, God, what the Godhead, the triune God, wants. God is for us. He's for us in the Spirit. He's for us in Christ. The Father sent his Son, and then he sent his Spirit, and now the entire Godhead, they're working for everyone who trusts in Jesus so that everything that comes into our life is part of the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus at the same time is asking for everything we need to successfully 
make it to the end. Successfully become like him in the end. So if God is for us, who can be against us? We can have this unconquerable, persevering confidence because God is for us in Christ. And then he gives a second reason why we can be confident. In verses 35 through 39, he tells us that we can have this unconquerable, persevering confidence because God loves us in Christ. And, and obviously, that's very similar. Love is, is kind of fleshing out what it means for God to be for us. He's for us because he loves us in Christ. And he begins by mentioning Christ's love, first of all. He says, who, can, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who can cut us off from Christ's love for us? And he gives some options. Shall tribulation... Or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. See some overlap here in these different ideas. Overall idea is opposition or mistreatment. It's asking, you know, if people could cut us off from Christ's love by doing these different things. Could somebody bring about some tribulation, or distress, or persecution that could sever Christ's love from us? Could somebody, could deprivation do it? Not having our needs, like... Famine or nakedness, hunger or nakedness. Could somebody's threat of bodily harm or actual personal injury or even judicial execution, that's what he's talking about here, could that actually stop us from experiencing Christ's love? I mean, these are the kinds of things that could derail our faith, right? These are the kinds of things that could cause us to doubt. I mean, could Christ really love us if the world rejects us and treats us the way that that they do? maligns us, mocks us, attacks us? Could Christ really love us if we're deprived of our basic needs? If if we lack food or clothing? Can we really say that Christ loves us if we're experiencing miscarriages of justice? And yet, Paul immediately shows us that there's a precedent for this in the Old Testament. So, we, we could ask, was Moses preserved from tribulation or distress? Was David preserved from being persecuted by Saul? Didn't the prophets face these, these different things? They faded mistreatment and danger and even the sword? So this is not new to God's people. That's why Paul quotes this lament of the righteous in Psalm forty-four twenty-two. He says, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The, the psalm is is a group of of the righteous, the ones who are right with God, not the wicked. And they're crying out to God about their mistreatment. They feel like they're just like sheep that have been destined for for slaughter. And so what Paul's saying is what was true for God's old covenant saints is true for his new covenant saints. This is not new. And just like what they experienced could not cut them off from God's love, what we experience cannot cut us off from Christ's love. That's, That's the answer Paul gives. In verse 37 directly. Could this cut us off? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And notice the past tense. He says loved us. So the specific thing that we're looking at here in terms of Christ's love is what he historically did. He came. He died. He rose again. That happened. We cannot be separated from the benefits of that. That's what Paul's getting at here. So in all these negative experiences, Paul's saying we are more than conquerors. That's a translation that started with the Geneva Bible back in the 1500s. And the the King James took it over, and then many modern translations continue with it. It's a really good translation of, of this word that means we don't just win. We win gloriously, overwhelmingly. 
I think what those, those Jewish rebels probably mistakenly believed about themselves is true of us. We are unconquerable. Not because of ourselves, not because of anything in us. But we can overcome whatever we face by faith in the one who loved us. Jesus demonstrated that with arms open wide for us on the cross. He demonstrated his love for us. It's clear. It's done. It's, it's something that we can know is true. So we conquer opposition, mistreatment. We do that through Christ, not in our own strength. There's nothing that we could face that could change Christ's love for us. The fact that he loved us on that cross. And understand, the way that Paul is talking, he's not simply saying that Jesus died for the possibility that some people might work with him to apply that death to their lives. That's not the way Paul's talking. He's saying, if you're trusting in Christ, when Jesus died, he did that for you specifically. It was intentional that when the son came, he was thinking, I'm going to rescue every single person in this room who is trusting in Christ. It wasn't just that I'm going to do this for people generally. But he had us in his mind. It's personal. That's what makes it so certain, so, so absolutely, unconquerably certain. He planned to rescue us. His chosen people who trust in him with this saving faith. Nothing can change that. Paul says he's convinced of that. He says, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus our Lord, Christ Jesus our Lord. Neither death nor life or anything in between. So no matter what we face in life, even up to the point of death and experiencing death, none of that can separate us. No, no spiritual creature, whether it be an angel from heaven or these heavenly rulers or powers. There's nothing that Satan or his demons could do or even a good angel could do to separate us from Christ's love, from the love of God. It's established in what Christ or what God did for us in Christ. Nothing can happen to us in the present or in the future that could change that. Nothing in the farthest reaches of space or in the deepest depths of the earth. Nothing that God has created can possibly separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because again, this salvation has nothing to do with our goodness or, or our efforts. God is saving us. He is the one who does it. Yes, we believe. But understand, even that is an, a matter of God's grace toward us. So we, we do not work with God for our salvation. God accomplishes it for us. So if we are genuine followers of Christ, if we truly belong to him, nothing can change it. And we can have absolute confidence of the glory that we've already begun to experience as we become more like Jesus, but that we will experience fully one day. We can have this unshakable, unconquerable confidence that keeps on persevering no matter what we face. Not because of us, not because of anything in us, but because God is for us in Christ and God loved us and loves us in Christ. Now, if you're on the outside of this, 
you're not sure that Jesus really is the Messiah, if you're not sure that what Jesus did really matters for your life, I don't want you to take this message and make it more complicated for yourself than it needs to be. I want, what we want you to consider is why you're here. And what are you here for? Why do you exist? Or are you just here by happenstance? So that you really don't have any, any meaning here. Or do you sense that there is a reason why you're here? That it's not just extreme luck. And the only way for us to have purpose and meaning for our lives is if there was an intention behind our existence. So if you were made by someone, then that someone has a reason for why you're here. If you were made by God, why, why did he make you? What Paul's been saying in this letter, this is what the Christian message is, is that God made you to reflect his glory. But from the very beginning, humans rejected that. We, we wanted to make our own glory for ourselves. And what we've done is we've made a mess of God's world. But what God did, he didn't just leave us to ourselves. In fact, he brought you here this morning so that you would hear about this good news. It was while we were wandering like sheep, while we were wandering away from God, that's when he sent his son to rescue us from our sin. And he did that in order to make us into this glorious humanity that he always intended us to be. So if you sense even now that you're not the way that you should be, you know what? God may be personally calling you right now to recognize the truth about yourself, the truth about this salvation. And what I, I would tell you is listen to him. Recognize that what he says about us is true. And that our only hope for being what we were made to be, intended to be, is to turn from this path that we're on. Where we're all about just trying to, to do what we think is best for ourselves. And instead to listen to the one who designed us. Trust in his son. Start listening to Jesus. And that's really what we do each week. We are those who have turned from our sin and keep turning from our sin and we're trusting in Jesus and we are now listening to him. That's what we do together. So if, if this is still confusing to you, I would encourage you to talk to somebody here. I'll be here. You can grab me. You can grab anybody. and You can ask them your questions. Now for those of us who believe what Paul's saying here in Romans 8, there's one more thing I want us to think about when it comes to confidence. And it has to do with this value in our culture now. It's a value on self-expression. It's not only that people in our world today want to be free to be who they are. More than that, people want other people to also value what they believe to be their authentic self. So people don't feel like you care about them or that you're even treating them the right way if you don't affirm what they're expressing to you, what they're expressing as who they feel they are. 
So authenticity is massively important right now. One of the byproducts of that is that we emphasize telling everybody, or we, we tell people to, to tell your truth, speak your truth. Be true to yourself. Don't let somebody, you know, put you in a box. Don't, don't let somebody make you conform to what they think you should be. That's why many don't think conforming in a religion is good. What's good is when you question what everybody's telling you to do. What's good is, is doubting what people tell you to believe. Doubt actually has become a religious virtue. Because you're encouraged by doubt to figure out what you really believe. And then to live that out. Authentically. Now don't misunderstand me. Doubt is not, it's not simply because we're being pushed on to, to, to doubt in these ways. People doubt. That's exactly why Paul ends this section the way that he does. People doubt. Paul's trying to encourage us to have confidence instead of doubt. But that's really hard when what's valued is not confidence but doubting what other people say. So what, what do we do in this age of authenticity? We, one of the ways we battle, I think, against this thinking for ourselves, because we're influenced by this, is we need to recognize that something is more authentic than our own self-expression. There's something more authentic than the way that we want to express ourselves. There's something truer than our truth. We don't actually have to accept the cultural view that truth starts with us and what we think. We can actually believe that truth, it can be found outside of us. That somebody can actually tell us what's true. We don't have to believe the idea that only you can determine what's true for yourself. That's what other people are telling us. And the funny thing is, that's, that's just it. They're, they're telling us to conform to this. They're, they're pressuring us. To think about ourselves the way that they are. To think that we are what we feel. That's not an idea that everybody just happens to come up with on their own. That's, what, that's the message that's being proclaimed in various ways today. God teaches us that we're not what we feel. He has a different truth. People around us are saying one truth. God's telling us another truth. He says we're created we're made to experience joy and glory and purpose, not by focusing on ourselves, though. In fact, focusing on ourselves, that's, that's exactly the fundamental root of our rebellion against God. So what we need to recognize, what Paul's even saying here is that what Jesus has done for us is truer than the truths we could construct for ourselves. The truths that we figure out for ourselves, they're only located in our mind, in our imagination. The truth that the Bible expresses happened in the real world. Jesus really lived, really died, really rose again, and is really seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, you can believe what people tell you in the reverse, but that is what the Bible is saying. And you can believe that that is a truth that happened in the real world, not just in our minds and what we think about ourselves. But what actually happened, it is truer than any truth we can construct. So we need to press into that because here's what will happen. When we believe the Bible's perspective on who we are, when we trust in Christ and we experience this transformation from one degree of 
degree of glory to the next. It's going to create in us a love that is more compelling than the message in our world today. It's going to be a love that flows out of God's love for us. That he did definitively in history showed us that love. And that love gives us this unconquerable persevering confidence that we can keep loving God and keep loving others. Join me in prayer. Father, it's easy for us to be confident about the wrong things. We can be self-assured and, and be wrong. Think that we can do things that we can't do. We can believe in ourselves and then we fail. We can trust in others and they fail. People are going to let us down. Christians are going to let us down. We're going to let ourselves down. But we can trust in with absolutely that it will never let us down is you. What you've done for us in Christ, what you're doing for us in Christ and by your spirit. Pray that you would fix our, our minds on that. In the face of the different messages that we hear today. That we would, we would fix our, our thoughts on the message that you have for us. And when we experience these different problems, when we experience pressure from the world that, that we would have the audacity to believe in a truth that's true for everyone. That we would not conform to the way that they say we are supposed to believe. Not conform to the identities that the world constructs today we feel that pressure and maybe experience even harder things than being attacked or maligned or mistreated, that we would be confident of your love, confident that you are for us, and confident that we can keep following you and keep loving even those who oppose us. that this would not create in us hostility towards those who oppose us, but that we would recognize that we were just as they were. That we would recognize it is but by your grace that we are now not thinking of those things that way. So help us to love them. Give us the strength and courage, confidence to continue to love you and love others. And if anyone here does not know you, pray that they would be willing to, to ask questions that they might have. But that even today, they would recognize by your spirit, by your powerful word, they need the salvation that is found in Jesus alone. Amen.